Welcome to Breakthrough Barriers with Damali. I'm your host, Damali Peterman. On this podcast, we introduce our new season's theme, Resilience, and I, along with the guest co-host, will share how we remain resilient amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to inspire our listeners to continue to break through. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, I have David Ross, a mediator at JAMS for over 30 years, an adjunct professor at Columbia Law School for the last 25 years, and a teacher and mentor at Facing History High School for about seven years. David, you are incredible, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. Welcome to the show. Damali, uh, thank you for calling me incredible. You're also incredible, and I'm very, very happy to be here. Oh, phenomenal. So David S. Ross Esquire is a mediator with JAMS where he's worked as a neutral for nearly 30 years. He has successfully resolved thousands of complex two-party and multi-party cases, including dozens of class actions. And he regularly handles high-profile cases involving celebrities, politicians, and CEOs of large corporations. Mr. Ross focuses on discrimination and sexual harassment disputes, as well as a wide array of business-related cases. His mediation career has been featured in the New York Law Journal and the National Law Journal. He teaches basic and advanced negotiation courses at Columbia University Law School, and he recently completed the negotiation masterclass at Harvard Law School. Mr. Ross served as an editor of a leading law school text on negotiation theory and practice called Beyond Winning, Negotiating to Create Value in Deals and Disputes. He's published multiple articles on topics of mediation and negotiation, including, I love this, From Eye Rolls to Grimaces, Understanding Body Language in Virtual Mediations in the International Law Quarterly Winter 2021, and the mind of the master mediator on the JAMS ADR blog and Bloomberg 2021. He serves as an international ambassador for the nonprofit, the Rainforest Alliance, a trustee for Friends of Facing History Incorporated, a member of the President's Council of the Peacebuilding Organization, Search for Common Ground, and a member of the Convergence Leadership Council, a nonprofit that solves social challenges through collaboration. Wow, David, I'm just wondering when you sleep. I mean, you are doing so many amazing and wonderful things. Yeah, I look great on paper. So um, <laughs> that, that took a lot longer than it should have. I could have cut out at least a third of it. Um, but when you reach your mid-50s to late-50s, for better or worse, you have some stuff you can say about yourself. So thanks for that gracious introduction. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I am looking forward to our conversation where we're going to focus on the theme of resilience, especially as it relates to conflict and how you, your industry, navigated the last 20 months. The goal is to encourage and inspire our listeners to continue to break through. So David, you and I will have a comfy informal and free-flowing chat. And our listeners just feel as if they're eavesdropping on a private conversation between two friends. Usually at this point in the conversation, 
I share with our listeners how I know our guests. And David and I were introduced by the phenomenal Nikki Borofsky, who said, you have to meet David Ross. You two are kindred spirits. You're doing a lot of the same fun things. You have the same great energy and you must know each other. And I have to say, immediately when I met David, I said, check, check, check. All the things Nikki said um, were true. And you are just a, a force, a, a trailblazer in many regards, David, but also just a wonderful force in the world doing things to help resolve conflict, to educate our future leaders um, from the high school level all the way up to the law school level, and thinking about different ways to work on international peace building, as I've seen in your work and devotion to uh, Search for Common Ground, both as current, currently serving on the President's uh, Leadership Council and also being a former board member. Thank you. I don't know if there was a question there, but if there is, <laughs> I will answer it. Otherwise, I will thank you again for saying such nice things. And I, I felt the same way. So maybe I'll, maybe I will say that the same way about you. You felt about me, and really glad that Nikki Borowski, um introduced us to each other. So it's all good. Excellent. Well, David, I want—I mean, I've said a lot about you, but I want to know what do you want people to know about you. So, can you please describe yourself in six words? Uh, in six words. Um, ooh, I just used four or five. Is that a problem? That a, <laughs> no. Are we taping? Okay. So, um, got a hot mic here. So yeah, I would, um, um, I'd say teacher, mediator, um, if I want to be grandiose, um, and a little inaccurate, I'd say peacemaker, um, with a very, very small P. Uh, and I'd add the word humorist because I try to bring humor as I say in a very serious way, <laughs> to everything I do, um, teaching, uh, mediating, uh, socializing, uh, my relationships. Um, it's really an important piece of who I am as a person. Um, I'd like to think it's a skill, certainly a trait. And that's what I would say. That may have been five words. I love that. And I would say peacemaker with a capital P. I don't think it's grandiose. And I don't tell I, Nelson Mandela that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and oh, and and I also think that you know you are being quite modest. Um, you've done so many incredible things, and your your work speaks for itself. And so I'd love for you to give us more insight into your industry. Not all of our listeners may be as you know well versed in mediation and ADR, among other things. And so I would love to for you to share why you are in this field and how did you get here? Sure. So why don't we start with how I got here? And then perhaps we can break it down and I can talk about jams and my work as a mediator there. Um, I can talk about my work as a teacher at Columbia Law School, and I can spend a little time talking about my work at Facing History School, if that makes sense to you. Sounds great. Great. So um, how did I get here? There were three events that happened. Um, and they were in a relatively um, compressed time period. And they ended up becoming interconnected and actually forcing me, uh, and I use the word force, to make a choice. So I went to college. Like so many graduates, other than pre-med students, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, decided I'd take the LSAT, which I bombed the first time, and had to make a choice whether to take it again. Uh, thank God I did. Thank God the numbers went up enough that I could get into um, you know, good enough school I felt comfortable going to. So I went to NYU Law School, which I loved. And my first job was at a big 
white shoe corporate law firm here in New York City, Cravath, Swain and Moore. I was in the litigation department because I always imagined being in front of a jury and trying to be persuasive and connecting with people and telling a story, which is something I like to do. And it didn't take long for me to realize that while I really respected my colleagues, the partners, associates, administrative staff, everyone, I loved the place and the culture, which was very professional, very hard driving, um, almost perfectionist, well, perfectionist. Um, I loved that aspect to the work at Cravath, but there was something that was missing. There was something where I felt as though this is not even close to exactly right for me. Uh, and I was young, early 20s, because right from college to law school, right to Cravath. So the three events are as follows in somewhat, I think in chronological order. The first was I was in a partner's office and first year associate and partners have a lot of mystique and perceived power. So I was a little bit nervous, but on my best behavior in any event, it was in late October, and this particular partner, who will remain unnamed, um, told me he had a great idea. He wanted to deliver a huge document request in demand on a particular corporation that we were in litigation with uh, on Halloween. And um, he was literally howling uh, with laughter. And I like people who are funny. I like things that are funny. I find humor in almost everything. And I was not laughing because I thought it was weird. <laughs> and I really couldn't believe this grown man um, was laughing at this idea, um, almost in a diabolical way. So that was sort of the warning bell. Not more than a couple of weeks later, I was working late as associates often do. And a partner came down to check on work I was doing and sort of check out and ask when the memo was going to be coming to him, whatever. Um, and he noticed that I had a poster of Gandhi uh, in the back of my office. And um, I studied Gandhi in college, and I really admired his work. And um, uh, passive resistance doesn't really encapsulate the crevath style or mantra for litigation. It's probably the opposite of that, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> um, and he looked at the poster, and he said, squinting, and it seems like it was yesterday, and of course it was you know, more than 25 years ago, he, he said, is that Gandhi back there? I turned around and I said, yes, said, yeah, that, that, that's Gandhi. And he just gave a certain look that um, made it seem clear that he was in disbelief that I would have a poster of Gandhi uh, in my litigation office at Cravath. And I thought, hmm, okay, I love Gandhi. He doesn't. Maybe no one else here does. Here's a second, here's a second event suggesting I may need to leave. By the way, my favorite quote from Gandhi is not be the change that you want to see in the world. It is live as if you were to die tomorrow, which is a little morbid, but if you can actually think about that once in a while, I find it quite helpful. Um, the third event was a personal one. Uh, my parents uh, survived a commercial plane crash in 1992, and I was at at that time. Um, I ended up becoming very involved in their recovery process. They both survived the crash. But I went into therapy to try to understand the feelings I was having and, and deal with the emotionality of what had happened. And Jacob Arlo, who was my therapist, told me that when you have an event like this, it can rearrange your priorities, which was so simple, but so powerful for me. And it made me think more. And I thought back to a case I was working on at Cravath, where we had done a lot of discovery, a lot of depositions. I was very involved. And then the judge settled it in a settlement conference 
in a couple of hours. And I thought to myself, I kind of, wow, what? We just worked thousands of hours. We filed a lot of motions and whatever. There've been so many hearings. And now we have the settlement conference and the judge just settles it. I, I like that. I like that. That's really, that is very intriguing to me um, that you can do that. And that led to me reading about mediation. I then went to Columbia Law School, got my LLM in ADR, um, took a year long course there. And then I ended up joining End Dispute, which became Jams End Dispute, which became Jams. That took longer than I thought. I apologize. <laughs> Oh, no, that's great. I mean, I, I find it fascinating. And I love how you shared those very three different um, and specific anecdotes that sort of led you to ADR and also how you then went to Columbia um, to pursue your LOM and ADR. You went to Indispute and that sort of brought you to, you know, the seat you hold right now at JAMS. Wow. So tell us what your sort of single biggest challenge was. And before I finish that that's that thought, I, I kind of want to just touch on a couple of things that you said with respect to, you know, some things that showed you that, you know, maybe you weren't in the right place at the right at that time. Because I think that's something that our listeners can relate to. And also, you know, as they're thinking about how they're navigating today and tomorrow and reflecting on some things that may be occurring, I really think it's great that they can sort of hear your journey and then see how you pivoted, if you will, not only through your own experiences, but also some things that were happening around you at the time with respect to your parents surviving the commercial crash and how you were navigating that. And so bringing all that to present day, uh, I'm curious to know what your single biggest challenge was in working in your industry um, throughout the pandemic. First, let me say that was excellent listening. <laughs> the teacher in you is coming out. <laughs> Do I get an A? <laughs> well, I appreciate that skill set. And maybe you probably don't need me to affirm what you already know, but uh, it feels very good. Um, and I can imagine how clients feel in mediations run by you as a mediator or other good mediators when you're listened to and the person can say back to you without parroting um, you know, we're using the exact same language, uh, what they heard and sort of tie it all together. So, um, so I really appreciate that skill. In answer to your question, I'm not just avoiding and dodging the question. <laughs> I believe it was, what was the single biggest challenge you face um, in your work, uh, you know, as the pandemic set in and, and obviously uh, continues. So I'd like to share three challenges. Two are predictable, so I'll get those out of the way. Although if you want to probe on them, I'm happy to share more. The first is no human contact uh, other than my family in our home, um, but no longer contact with clients and with students. The second was a real uh, fear of the technology that was required to run mediation sessions through Zoom. I addressed that fear head on after being paralyzed for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I decided, you know what? What is the most I can ask of myself? Maybe, how about I get so good at Zoom that I actually can train others in how to use it. So I set that very high bar again after being paralyzed for a while. Um, I mean, not literally, but I just was so fearful of it. Um, and so I began to learn about it. And sure enough, through some hard work and a couple nervous moments, 
I ended up giving training programs uh, to uh, plaintiff's lawyers, defense lawyers, to law firms, other clients. And that felt really good to conquer that fear, to address that fear and conquer it. Um, the third one may be less uh, predictable. Uh, and that is, I realized that I could not be the uh, control, I hate the term control freak, I'm just going to use it, the control freak that, that I am. And that I had to relax a little bit, realize there's so many things that I cannot control and get comfortable with that and uh, really change the entire sort of the emotional and psychological stance that I took when it came to conducting mediations and to training um, on Zoom at Columbia. So those are my three. One, I think that you said that there are some things that were probably predictable and then one that wasn't. And two, I think that everyone can probably relate to, you know, the experience that you that you outlined, you know, from no human contact with people that you care about and love and people that you're used to working with and, and also educating. And of course, you know, like this whole world went remote and all of a sudden we have to you know, navigate technology that may not have been something that everyone did on a regular basis. And then I think, you know, this idea of just letting go, right? You know, because it's something that comes up a lot for, for all of us, you know, just trying to figure out, okay, like, what can I control? What can I not control? And as you mentioned, because my question did ask you about how did you navigate the pandemic? You said, the pandemic, you know, and ongoing <laughs> because it is ongoing and 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 we are still navigating it, which is why I think this podcast and this particular season focusing on resilience resilience is so important because you're continuing to learn and to lean in um and and tap into the experience of of everyone who's been a guest on the podcast, but also just to learn from it, whether people are in the same industry or not. You know, what I've seen and heard as we've been working on this this season, it's just so many wonderful ways to help people move forward and also to, you know, continue to be resilient. And so like that Elton John song, David, you are still standing. And I'm curious to know, where does your resilience come from and how do you tap into it? That's an excellent question. And I'm not sure exactly where to start, but I I think I'll start by quoting the Beatles, and I'll get the lyrics wrong here a little bit, so I apologize in advance, but getting by with a little help from my friends and family. Um, so there's two pieces to that. One is non-blood relatives. So I reconnected with two friends that um, I'm close to, and I've known literally for 45 years, who I knew in middle school, and we started having regular Zoom calls, and just that the longevity of that relationship, uh, us knowing each other so well, uh, that gave me some real comfort and some peace of mind. That became a real regular part of, of my week. You know, once or twice a week, we would have that call. With respect to my family, I think with my children, one in particular, I won't name because, you know, they're all so great. And this one had to be greater with respect to dealing with the pandemic. He or she, because I have sons and daughters, dealt with it. Did a lot of reading, um, was very focused on the science, uh, was um, very um, hyper aware of not um, 
getting caught up in uh, the pandemonium and the, um, the, the hyperactivity of, of fantasizing and ruminating about what could happen and what, you know, how bad it could be. And it was just very fact-based. And when he or she did that, I was thinking that's the right way that this is a really thought and the person started meditating, which I also started doing. So something practical and meditating and bringing some perspective and peace and some calmness, because as you can probably tell, I can get riled up and, <laughs> and focusing on the science and, you know, reading um, articles and reports that were truly fact-based that helped me as well, because I, I, I modeled after my child. That's great. And I, I mean, not only not only the self-care aspect of meditating, right? Because I consider that to be a workout for your brain. Seeing so, we exercise our bodies and you know, do you know, walking or playing a sport or going to the gym. Um, I also like hearing about, you know, focusing on something that will keep you grounded, right? And so for you and and this particular child who will go unnamed, it's kind of focusing on the science among other things. And I also loved hearing you say that you reconnected with some friends from your childhood and you had this recurring uh, sort of Zoom call because that kind of, you know, you mentioned not, you know, letting go, you know, and not wanting to be a control freak and what that also helps with, especially in the the unknown aspect of the pandemic, it's something to look forward to, some consistency um, and someone who you've known for a long period of time. And so I think that those are really great ways to maintain resilience and, you know, kind of the tap into different ways that, you know, to, to provide examples of different ways for people to kind of tap into resilience. And so I'm curious to know if, if there are any mistakes that you made or a mistake that you made that you want to prevent others from making. So is that a mistake in response to the onset of the pandemic or is that a stake? Is that a mistake over the course of my professional my entire professional career? The question is intentionally vague so that you can answer it the way that you want to answer it. But I love the legal clarification sought <laughs> by you. Your students must love you. <laughs> I try to be clear. I'm not always, but thank you for saying that. I also am a pleaser, so I want to answer the question that you want me to answer. So I know it was vague. Should I just say... Yeah, I mean, it, the, the question can go out do you, do, throughout your career um, throughout your life, it could be focused on the pandemic. The, the takeaway here is, you know, some is for someone to say, ah, you know, you're 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 sharing something that someone listening could say, ah, he learned from that. I could be experiencing that right now, or maybe I had a similar experience and I didn't see it that way. And so, how do we learn from that? Great. So I um, I'm prepared to answer that question, and I'm about to do it. In this moment. As friends often say to me, will you just get to it? Will you just say it? You're all about, but when you, you know, when you wanted to be a stand-up comedian, you know, you build, you have to build. People have to be focused and ready for the line when it can land. Um, that is awesome. We have that in common too. You know, you know, I, I studied improv. And so what I, what I love, I, I feel like you are being a little bit subdued. I love that you're letting out that humor now. <laughs> I'll answer the question. Here we go. So um, I, I'm going to say that being able to give up control and being able to relax 
and not really fear making a mistake or knowing exactly what's going to happen next, whether it's in a classroom or it's in a mediation, has been something that I think is going to stay with me. I don't want to suggest that I was ever overly rigid when I taught or when I mediated. I, I never really was, but I was hyper-organized, hyper-prepared, um, hyper-engaged, and hyper-focused on making sure nothing went wrong, anticipating what clients uh, and the lawyers might say and being ready to, to respond to, to points that they were going uh, to make or share. When you give up that control, that need for control, again, I think rooted in fear, you become by definition more present. And when you're more present, you become a better listener. You become more open to creative ideas or at least ideas that you hadn't anticipated yourself. You make the people in the room, I think, feel more valued and perhaps even outside of their awareness, more present as well. And I find that approach now to teaching and to mediating to be yielding enormous uh, dividends, um, um, not just for myself, because it's not about me, but for my clients and for my students, um, who are sort of like my educational clients. And it frees you up. Um, it frees you up. It makes you more relaxed. It makes you think differently. It, it allows you to make connections. Often for me, it's with humor or it's just from different pieces of my life that the people in the mediation don't really anticipate or expect me to share. And that humanizes. Um, it also normalizes. And uh, I cannot think of another Isaac. So we have to end it with two. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> well, which was really, you know, the, what's, the takeaway for me from what you said is that you were relinquishing control um, helped you to be more present. And what I love about what you said was not that you were less prepared or less organized or less anticipatory of what someone could say on the other side. You still did all of those things and you were still adequately prepared. And then you were, I, am I going to, I'm going to probably lean into this a little bit more than what you said to say that you felt confident in that, in the sense so that you could be present in the moment, not try to control everything. You said you shared more of yourself during, you know, some of these conversations or interactions, which did all of the eyes you know, humanized and normalized and, you know, maybe someone apologized. Um, and I think that's great, David, because I think that that's one key takeaway that people could see how that could, you know, being so concerned or focused on being, and I'll use this visual analogy, the puppet master, if you will, can make you less present of what's going on around you. And I always know when someone's not giving me their undivided attention. Um, I also recently watched some documentary where they were showing that you can't really multitask. And I think that what they did, it was like a focus test. And they told you to focus on someone who was jumping on a trampoline for and count how many jumps that person did. Right. Yep. right. You know yep. this one. So I was focusing on it. And then afterwards, the question was how many jumps? And I was like, you know, I said the number and it was right. And then I was like patting myself on the back. And then the next question was, did you notice the gorilla walk in? 
<laughs> it's a classic moment. It's really a, it's a it is a moving moment, isn't it? And you're like, what gorilla are you talking about? Right. And it's like. <laughs> How did they slip something by me? Demonte right. Peterman. <laughs> A whole me. gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. And so I think in the spirit of the fact that you are an exceptionally accomplished mediator, having mediated over a thousand you know, cases, um, you're an educator who's been in higher education for you know, over tw- you know, 25 years and also working in secondary education. And... You know, among other things, a negotiation master. Um, I took that same course um, at Harvard during the pandemic, which was fun. Um, and you're, there's so many things that you've shared with us. And you have already suggested a song because you said that one of the songs that kind of reflects, you know, your one of your philosophies is that Beatles song, which I don't know what the name of the song is, but you are right. I get by with a little help from my friends and you added family. And so the last question that I'll ask you in the spirit of each one teach one, um, which we know that you are quite adept at, is to suggest a book, a song, a course, a program for our listeners. I'm going to suggest that people consider watching Jerry Seinfeld in Comedians in Cars Having Coffee I can explain why, because it may not be immediately apparent to you or any of the people who may listen to this podcast. (laughs) I'm I'm anxious to hear. (laughs) Great. So here's my thinking. Um, First, I think humor is enormously important because uh, it allows people often outside of their immediate awareness to relax and also to have perspective. No matter how serious the case is that I'm handling, with the exception of ones that involve physical assault or um, truly dramatic and deeply emotional and personal events. Um, So we'll talk more about pure business transactions that I help to resolve. Giving people perspective, I think can be useful because lawyers can get um, caught in a sinkhole of their of their narrow role, I'm zealous advocates. I must get the best deal for my client. I must be assertive or aggressive, whatever word you want to use. And when they're in that sinkhole, they play a certain role, but they may lose the opportunity to be a confidant and to be um, someone who can be a little more pragmatic and less focused on winning or losing in court. Uh, so I think that's important, important for their clients too. So that's the humor piece. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld's an excellent listener. If you watch him in the show, he keys off of what his friend is saying. And they build rapport. Also enormously important for me as a teacher, enormously important for skilled mediators to build genuine rapport uh, with the people who are in the conflict and wanting you to help them resolve it. And I guess, finally, passion. So Jerry Seinfeld's passionate about cars. He has the money to buy whatever he wants, so good for him. Uh, And he loves his cars. He knows the details about his cars. He's also passionate, obviously, about comedy and about coffee, which is how the show happens. So that idea of of passion. And he is unafraid, much like Larry David is unafraid in his show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, to laugh and to laugh loudly and to even look a little funny as they laugh. So 
being able to laugh and to laugh loudly, even when you're trying to resolve a conflict or learn a difficult skill or concept at a Columbia Law School class, I think is, is hugely important. So my tagline, which I'm developing in this moment, wait for it. Oh. <laughs> have perspective so you can give perspective. Ooh. Have perspective so you can give perspective. I can think of no better way to end a, an incredible podcast with you, David Ross. Thank you so much for joining us today. I loved every minute. And after we sign off, I may just continue speaking. Um, <laughs> I would love for you to continue speaking. Um, and what a great recommendation to watch Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars. In Cars, having coffee. Having coffee, combining the passion of comedy, uh, cars, coffee, and also, like you said, developing a rapport and listening and leaning in to really connect with the person who is sitting there next to you, in front of you, if you're in a virtual screen. And for that, to that point, I would like to thank the audience for tuning in with us today. I am your host, Damali Peterman, and this is Breakthrough Barriers with Damali. Continue to break through and have a wonderful day. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Breakthrough ADR. That's the at sign, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, capital A, capital D, capital R. I'm your host, Damali Peterman. And this is Breakthrough Barriers with Damali. Although I am a lawyer, mediator, and an educator, and many of my co-hosts will represent various professions, we want to be clear that we are not providing legal advice, counseling, or suggestions. Our goal is to provide a roadmap for conflict resolution to generate future conflict resolvers. Continue to break through and have a wonderful day.